If you turn in your Bibles now, our scripture reading will come from the book of Mark as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11, and we will be reading from verse 27 of Mark 11 all the way through chapter 12, verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 12, 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 through 12, 12. As I mentioned in the past, Mark chapter 11 marks a point in the ministry and life of Jesus. This chronicles the last week of his life. And it is an emphasis in the Gospel of Mark as he spends nearly one-third of the entire Gospel on the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this account here occurs on Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. The word of God reads, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the winepress, and built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Then they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which is true and endures forever, for the authority that it gives. And we bow before you and your precious word. May you illumine the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. All of us submit to some authority. All of us submit to some authority. We submit to the laws of the government. We submit to the code of conduct in our workplaces. We submit to the teachers, the administrators, and the schools that we attend. If you're children, you submit to your parents. All of us submit to some form of authority. But sometimes we find that submission very difficult, especially when we disagree. And because of our sinfulness, we will push back, fight back, and conflict easily escalates. You've probably heard this particular illustration before, but in the magazine of the Naval Institute, which is called the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings, there's a man whose name is Frank Coach, and he illustrates the importance of obedience to a greater authority. And in that article, he writes about two battleships assigned to the training squadron, he writes, and they'd been at sea on maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. He writes that, I was serving on the lead battleship and was on watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge keeping an eye on all activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported light, light, bearing on the starboard bow. The captain called out, is it steady or is it moving astern? The lookout replied, steady, steady, captain, which meant we were on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain called out to the signalman, signal that, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change your course 20 degrees. Back came the signal, click, click, click. Advisable for you to change your course 20 degrees. The captain said, send this. I am the captain. Change your course 20 degrees. Click, click. I'm a seaman, second class. You'd better change your course 20 degrees. Well, the captain was furious. He sent out a signal. He said, send this. I am a battleship. Change your course 20 degrees. Click, click, click. Came back the signal. I'm a lighthouse. And they changed their course. You know, a lot of times we refuse to see the signal that is there as Jesus is the lighthouse that warns of imminent danger and he warns people and people often respond with offense because they think in their own little world that they want to be the captain of their own ship. That they drive some sort of battleship wanting to plow wherever they want to go and they push back against God, against God's authority, against God's way, against God's wisdom, against God's word. They think that they know what is wisest, they know what is best, they know what is good for them. And in order to get what they want, many times they respond in anger when it comes to the authority that God imposes. They fight back, they question, 
they have all sorts of responses that are other than submitting to the authority of God. When Jesus came into the temple, as we saw in the earlier in the chapter, when Jesus came into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and he drove out those who were buying and selling of all sorts of animals in the temple area, earlier there in the chapter in Mark 11, it rattled the Jewish leadership. This was Passover, a remembrance of the greatest event in the mind of the Jews, where there were probably about 2.5 million people in the city. And the temple court of the Gentiles was a huge area, 25 times the size of a football field, all franchised out to various sellers of animals and sellers of goods and money changers so that people could have their offering that would bring their sacrifices in a proper way, according to the religious leaders. And when Jesus came in there and he stopped the commerce, it would be like, in our day perhaps, shutting down Black Friday. All of the retailers would be up in arms because that would be the day in which all of the commerce would stop. And they were infuriated, these chief priests and these Jewish leaders would be. And the section in 1127, our scripture reading today, is the first of Mark's record of seven accounts of conflict that Mark presents to us between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. This is just two days before the crucifixion of Jesus. And in 1115, what happens is that Jesus brings the fight right to the temple. He brings the fight right to the temple grounds, the court of the Gentiles, in confronting the false religious system that had been put together. And now, he's going to be confronting the false religious leaders of that system. And Jesus opposes them, and he opposes them publicly. They were the religious leaders. The center of their leadership was found in what was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin composed of 71 Jewish leaders, powerful, influential of the Jewish judiciary, leaders of their religious beliefs as well as some of their political beliefs. They were the ones, the Sanhedrin was the buffer between Rome and their exercise of authority and the people. There was a Sanhedrin in between. And aside from the incident that we find in Mark chapter 14, which is Jesus' trial, Mark presents here the only incidents in which there were representatives from the various groups of the Sanhedrin who have come together in order to confront Jesus. And it is a telltale sign, it is a telltale sign that the upper echelons of the Jewish leadership were all concerned about Jesus, and they all saw him as a threat to their false religious practices. Because within the Sanhedrin, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the chief priests, and many of them, they, they, they virtually disagreed on nearly everything. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had almost nothing in common. I mean, the Pharisees, they were ritualistic in all of their legalistic practices. And the Sadducees, while they were rationalistic, they didn't even believe in some of the supernatural things like angels, etc. The Pharisees, they were separatists, the holier than thou. Look at me, I am separate from all of you. I won't touch anybody who's not a you know, Jew, etc. All of those things, they were separatists. Whereas the Sadducees, they were the, 
the collaborators, they were the ones who wanted to make good with Rome. They had no problem working with Rome so that they could continue to line their pockets because the Sadducees, they were the aristocrats, the ones who were wealthy, the ones who worked the temple business, and they were infuriated by what Jesus had done because this took away from some of their profits that they had franchised out all of these little booths in the temple area. Whereas the Pharisees, they were the commoners by by trade. Many of the Pharisees had other professions and they were sort of the run-of-the-mill particular Jew who were Pharisees as well. And so they weren't wealthy, but they, they, were, they had a great sway among the people in terms of their religious beliefs. But both of them had separate, separate, often conflicting views, except when it came to Jesus. And so you know when they come together as they do here, seeing and agreeing that Jesus was a problem to their religious life, you know that it would be a huge deal to them. You can imagine in our own country, imagine if all of the Democrats and all the Republicans and all the independents all agreed on one thing. That just does not happen. Well, here, the same thing. Here you have the chief priests, you have the scribes, many of them were Pharisees, you have the elders, and they all agreed Jesus is going to be the target, and Jesus is a problem, and they all come together. And later on, as we develop this in the coming weeks, we're going to see that there is going to be a conflict, specifically with the Pharisees, specifically with the Sadducees, specifically with the scribes, and we're going to see each of these groups. But they all come together, and they're all in agreement that Jesus is to be dealt with. And here they are. And so they come with a question. We find that in verse 27. Whose authority do you follow? That is the question. They come again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking through the temple, the scripture says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, Jesus, here he comes with his disciples to the temple. And the temple is not some, you know, like small country church. It's a huge, magnificent edifice. I mean, the temple, this Herodian temple is beautiful. There are these huge colonnades that go around. It is a huge court of the Gentiles. It has a commanding view of Jerusalem and of the Mount of Olives, and it is unrivaled theologically, historically, in terms of its religious significance. It was a beauty. And Jews would come from far and wide, especially for the Passover, the greatest event in the Jewish mind. They would come for the Passover from many, many miles to make the journey to the temple. It would be like for uh, Muslims, Mecca would be the great city that they would go to. Well, Jerusalem here was the temple, and he would set the stage. He would set the stage here in the most authoritative place in a series of conflicts against the most authoritative religious leaders of Israel in an epic conflict against the authority of Jesus and God himself. And so here the stage is set. That is the context in which we are at. Now the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, this is the high court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin. And they ask him a question. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? 
Now, this was not some sort of benign question. In other words, they weren't looking to learn. This was more of a, a snarky question, a cutting question, a snide comment. And when you read it, it, it this is in our vernacular, it would come across as, who do you think you are? That's how it would come across. That's the tone of the question. And the question was posed about whose authority, you know, because oftentimes rabbis, when they taught, they would teach as if somebody quotes this, somebody quotes that. They would always appeal to another authority. And so here there was a question of authority. And so these particular individuals that come as representatives of the Sanhedrin, no doubt, were coming with the authority of the Sanhedrin, throwing their weight around because they were members of the Sanhedrin. You don't know who we are. We're part of the Sanhedrin. And who do you think you are? That's the tone of the question. And when I'm thinking about this, it reminded me of this time when, you know, uh, a friend of mine was at SeaTac Airport, you know, and they're waiting at the gate. And sometimes, you know, people come up to the gate attendant and they have various requests. They have various requests. And so this gentleman that my friend was telling him he was coming up to the gate, the counter of the gate, and he was demanding something from the gate attendant. And many times I feel badly for these gate attendants because, you know, there's only so much they can do. And many times they're out of their hands. But apparently this man was just very demanding something that he wanted he didn't get. And he was very worked up. And he says to the gate attendant, do you know who I am? Angry and all that. To which the airline attendant picked up the intercom. And in the loudspeaker he said, Ladies and gentlemen, we have a gentleman here who doesn't seem to remember who he is. And then it storms off. Well, these religious leaders were like throwing their weight around, and they were coming to Jesus, fuming that he had stopped their business. Black Friday was over. And basically, who do you think you are? You know, we're the Sanhedrin. That's how it comes across. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he didn't need another authority. In fact, he, he often taught in a way that was different than the rabbis because he possessed authority himself. Mark chapter 1, in the early chapters of Mark, when we began our study, they were amazed, it says in verse 22, at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Scribes would teach, oh, Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that. And when you go online, you read the Talmud or you read other writings of the rabbis, you would say you would often find that they would quote some well-known rabbi as their authority. And here these particular scribes were coming, these particular religious leaders were coming and quoting or throwing their own authority and saying, whose authority do you have? Well, the Bible testifies of Jesus' authority time and time again, his absolute authority over all things. And Jesus' authority comes from God the Father himself. Repeatedly affirms that his absolute authority comes from God. It says in John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All authority over all flesh, John 17, 2. In Matthew's gospel, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And in Matthew 28, 18, in the Great Commission, right before that, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. The Bible testifies that Jesus has absolute authority over all things, and the authority comes from God himself. Now, it is not as if Jesus had not ever 
said these things, nor is it do I think that they truly didn't know. In other words, I think that they already knew. Jesus had said these things early on in his ministry. But they were always out to discredit Jesus and to force Jesus to claim that God gave him this authority in the public square of the temple and then to set him up in accusation of him committing blasphemy. They wanted to entrap him in his words. But to their question at hand, Jesus replies with a question. Now this is not uncommon in those days for a rabbi to respond to a question and use another question. It wasn't some sort of snarky remark back. You're going to be snarky to me, I'm going to get back at you. That's not how it is. It is not unusual for a rabbi to make that kind of approach. He was simply being tactful because he knew that they were trying to incriminate him in his own words. He wasn't going to plead the fifth. He was just saying something that was self. He wasn't going to self-incriminate himself. So he asked them a question, and that is our second point. Whose authority do you recognize? And Jesus said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now, this was a masterful question. This was a masterful question because John the Baptist was extremely, extremely popular. He was uh, the greatest prophet, it says in the scriptures, who had lived up until that time. And people came far and wide to hear John the Baptist. And many were baptized into a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance basically means that somebody has come and they see their sin, and they want to renew their desire publicly to not walk in their sinful ways. The baptism of repentance, and that's what that phrase meant. And that phrase that Jesus uses here, the baptism of John, would encompass his entire ministry. So, that is the question. I tell you, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. So, verse 31 there they are. They're kind of scratching their heads. They begin reasoning among themselves, saying, from heaven. If we say from heaven, then why did you not believe him? Now, you might recall that John the Baptist and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not friends. They were not, like, tight. Matthew 3, 6 to 7 tells us the tone of the relationship. Matthew 3, 6 to 7. And they were being baptized by him, meaning the people... John in the Jordan River, and they confessed their sins. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, this is what friends don't say to one another, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He knew these Pharisees and Sadducees, maybe they were lined up in this long line to be baptized by John. And he said, who are you, you snakes, to come? You'd better repent before you get baptized because you are not living a life that ought to be proper. I mean, they were not. They were not at all. And John knew that somehow they had come with an ulterior motive. Now, whether that ulterior motive was sort of to be baptized so they would look good in front of the people, or I don't know what their motive was, but John knew that it was not a godly motive. So, that was a quandary for these particular leaders of the Sanhedrin. Now, if we say, well, he's from God, then he's going to say, why didn't you believe him? Verse 32. 
But if we say from men, well, they were afraid of the people. For everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Now, Luke 20, verse 6 is the parallel passage to this. And Luke expands on what the reasoning was. Verse 6, it says in Luke 20, But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So, the people thought John was from God, but the religious leaders didn't believe it. And Jesus, what he does masterfully is he puts them between a proverbial rock and a hard place. The real problem here is that the Jewish leaders were always trying to make themselves look good, make Jesus look bad, curry the favor of the people, and turn the people against Jesus. The real problem is that the leaders were always trying to please the people and please themselves rather than please God. Like many who were in politics, they were out for what would please the populace. They were driven, on the one hand, by an ungodly fear of Jesus and the fear of people. They were driven by the fear of man. As Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 29, 29, the fear of man brings a snare. And that is what godly leaders cannot do. Practically speaking, that is what godly leaders cannot do. They cannot go around trying to be people pleasers, meeting everyone's expectations. Leaders are to do what pleases God, not what pleases the people. Now, they may coincide if the people desire to please God too. And likewise, preachers are to preach the word of God, whether it is popular or whether it is unpopular, just as we will see. After a few days, when Jesus came in riding a wave of popularity into Jerusalem, tens of thousands of people in palms, branches, and coats being thrown onto the floor in order to say, we submit to you tens of thousands of people welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem on Monday. By Friday, many of them have turned their back on him. The fickleness of the populace is not any basis by which we are to follow, but the steady Word of God and the things God desires are what leaders are supposed to do. And the same thing, too, for you and I. When we choose to do certain things and choose not to do other things, our decisions are to be about what does God, what is God pleased with the most? What brings the most glory to God? What will glorify the Lord of heaven the most? What will make God smile not what others will think, not what makes me look the best, not what pleases others, but what pleases and glorifies God. That is what we are to do, and that is what they did not do as leaders. So, what was their answer? Verse 33, answering Jesus, they said, um, you don't know. And they come across sort of a, you know, sort of a fumbling, clumsy group of people who are always trying to bring a question to Jesus. And I thought to myself, you know, a number of our students here are involved with debate club. Back in my day, we, I mean, we didn't have debate clubs, I think. We just debated on the playground about who's going to get the ball. But they have these debates. And it's like going against this genius. And whoever goes up against this genius, and they try all sorts of things, and they're always losing. And, you know, I'd say, if I were their friend, I'd say, you know, maybe just give up. He's just too smart for you. And their own 
But the problem is that their own hatred of Jesus fuels their animosity, and they continually try to undermine him. And so here they cannot seem to get the upper hand. So they say, they blame him. We don't know. Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because remember, they wanted him to answer. They wanted to entrap him in his own words and then accuse him publicly of committing blasphemy. They had failed to get Jesus to implicate himself. The question for us is, who are we? Who are we always trying to please? Are we always trying to do what pleases God? Are we always trying to do what is biblical and to think biblically and to do what is right? Are we so often driven by what pleases people, what pleases others, what will make others happy and Oh, the things we say, the things we do, what it drives us. We are to do it because we want to bring God glory. We want to do what is right because God will be pleased. Now, Jesus knew the evil hearts of these individuals who had come to try to entrap him. And so he gives the populace a parable, a parable about a man who planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press built a tower, and rented it out to these vine growers, and he went on a journey. Now, this man did everything that was proper to be successful. He put up a wall of protection. He built a wine vat in order to catch all of the, the wine press, to collect all the wine. He built a tower. A tower would be used as a lookout. A tower would be used to store instruments. A tower would be a place that they'd be able to uh, store grain and tools, etc., and it was not an uncommon arrangement at all. This parable and the parables of Jesus are always set in the context of reality. They're not fiction in the sense that it is uh, sort of some sort of fantasy. There are things that are real-life hypothetical situations that would be common knowledge to the people. This is what a, vine, a, vi a vineyard owner would do. So they could easily relate to this. And it's not an uncommon arrangement for the vineyard owner to rent out his vineyard and collect a share of the produce in this type of arrangement. To collect a share of the produce and rent out the owner, then, of course, he'd send a slave. That's how the parable goes. He sent a slave, and the first slave, they beat him. Literally, it says to remove his skin. And that gives us an indication in that word, beat him, how badly the man was beaten up. The second slave... Likewise, was wounded in the head. And that particular phrase is perhaps even worse. In today's vernacular, we translate that as he had his head bashed in. That's how much they wounded him. And they shamed him on top of that. We don't know how they shamed him, but they shamed him on top of that. And the third slave was even worse. The degree of violence against these slaves continued to escalate such that the third one was murdered. He was murdered. He was killed. And then it continues on, that he continued to send slaves to collect, to receive what was proper to the owner. And each of them was beaten or killed. Now, at this point in time, the listeners, the listeners of the parable would have thought much like perhaps you and I. If we didn't know the end of the story, well, that, well, the rational thing to do would be that the landowner would get together a small group of armed men, perhaps a tiny, you know, little uh, military army or whatever, whatever he needed to do to drive these land 
tenants out. These obstinate tenants to exact justice, to exact revenge, especially for beating and killing many of the servants that were sent. But like many parables in the New Testament, what Jesus does is he induces, he introduces a surprising element, and that is very common in the parables, such that the people would gasp and say, wow, why would he do that? The text tells us, verse 6, that he had one more to send, a beloved son. This is a beloved son. He didn't, he didn't send the, 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 the son that was the, the, the most ornery of his. No, he sent his beloved son. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. That's their hope. That is the hope of the landowner. And it displays to us the heart of God, the heart of God that continues to give, give, and desire that his son would be well respected. But these vine owners, verse 7, says, this is the heir. Let's come. Let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they did. They took him, verse 8. They killed him. They threw him out of the vineyard. After they killed him, he would be nothing more to them than just roadkill. The wild beasts, the wild birds, the birds of the air would come and eat the carcass. That is what they thought of their son. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vineyard, vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. That's the parable that Jesus tells. The interpretation is not difficult to see. The interpretation is not difficult to see. In fact, at the very end, even the members of the Sanhedrin, whom Jesus was telling this parable to in the hearing of many others, they knew what this meant. It's easy to see that the obstinate tenants were the vineyard owners and they were the members of the Jewish leadership and that the owner was God himself. The vineyard represents Israel, I think, and all the slaves that were sent were the messengers of God continually coming, coming over the course of the entire Old Testament. Alfred Plummer, who's a commentator, he writes this quote, the uniform hostility of kings, priests, and people to the prophets is one of the most remarkable features in the history of the Jews. The amount of hostility varied, and it expressed itself in different ways. On the whole, increasing in intensity, but it was always there. Deeply as the Jews lamented the cessation of the prophets after the death of Malachi, they generally opposed them as long as they were granted to them. Till the gift was withdrawn, they seemed to have had little pride in this exceptional grace shown to the nation and little appreciation for it or thankfulness for it, unquote. You know, the second century Christian martyr whose name was Justin Martyr reported that Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah was constantly mistreated. He was accused of treason, Jeremiah 37, 13. He was thrown into a pit, Jeremiah 38, 9. And according to tradition, he was stoned to death by the Jews. I mean, here was Jeremiah, a preacher for 40 years, a preacher of condemnation to the nation, and he was severely mistreated. Ezekiel faced a similar, similar hatred and hostility, Ezekiel 2.6. Amos was forced to flee for his life, 
Zechariah was rejected, Zechariah 11:12. Micaiah was struck in the face, 1 Kings 22:24. Ultimately, God, after all of these prophets whom he sent to the nation of Israel, ultimately God would send his son. And what happened? Verse 10 of Mark 11. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. They came about from the Lord and is not marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone of a building was the stone in which all other stones in a building would be aligned so that, so that the building would be straight. The cornerstone represents Christ. It was the chief stone. It was a reference to Jesus. And this was the quotation that Jesus gave, that they would reject his son as well. This is the passage too in Psalm 118, that Peter in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter stood before the very Sanhedrin that Jesus was confronting, he would stand before the Sanhedrin and he would quote this, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that is the name, the name of Christ whom they had rejected. And they were seeking to seize him. Because as soon as the representative of the Sanhedrin heard that, they wanted to seize Jesus. But once again, it says in the text, verse 11, they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. They were convicted. They knew that he was speaking against them. They knew that they had rejected and were going to reject the Son of God. No, they didn't recognize. They didn't bow to the knee to him, but they recognized that he was speaking about himself. And they didn't believe it. They didn't accept it. But they knew that he was speaking about them. Those that don't accept Christ, those that don't see Jesus, see him as either an imposition or an enemy to their own way of life. Because Jesus, when he steps into a life, when he steps into a heart, he gives a new heart, a new entire way of living, and he calls us to repent and to reorient our priorities, to change our way of living, to change our way of thinking, to bring conviction to the heart of sin. Jesus steps into the picture, and either one will bow the knee to Jesus, or one will reject him and become an enemy in wanting him out of the picture, just like the Sanhedrin did. We as sinners, we want to be the captain of our own ship. We feel that we have the battleship, that we have the right of way. And until God changes our hearts and opens up the veil of our blind eyes, we'll never see that Jesus has been there, shining the light to warn us of the destruction to come. And many who do not bow the knee to Jesus will run their ship into the rocks and will perish. There is a Christmas story that Douglas LeBlain writes, and I'll close with this, about Christmas Eve and about his own testimony of his own father. He says that one of the fondest memories of Christmas Eve is singing Angels We Have Heard on High, along with my father, when I was about nine years old. Dad was a shy man, so he normally would sing hymns very softly. On this night, though, he sang it full bore off-key, with the deepest yearning that I had never heard him before. Dad was drunk that night. 
He was a melancholic, battered man, a World War II Army veteran who saw many of his friends blown to bits. He sought refuge in alcohol, which made life pretty frightening for Mom, my older brother Randy, and me. But in church I saw the gentle Cajun who drew, grew up and still feared God. Only a few years after this Christmas Eve service, my brother became a Jesus freak. Dad began reading the Bible to help my brother realize how far he had stepped off the deep end into religious extremism. Within a year, Dad realized that my brother had found a relationship with Jesus that Dad had not discovered. So Dad surrendered to Jesus. Then his drinking simply stopped. He still struggled with anger. We still argued about the length of my hair, my failure to practice the piano, and my half-hearted efforts at homework. Still, I was being associating Dad more with love than fear. I spent nearly every Christmas with Dad until his death in 1992. We sang Angels We Have Heard on High. Together many times, but somehow my keenest memory is of Dad singing it with such yearning. Now when I sing this carol, I know a small measure of the yearning Dad felt when I was a boy. I close my eyes and imagine Dad in heaven singing along with the top of his redeemed lungs, feeling drunk on his adoration for God, unquote. This morning, as we encounter this new year, the question is, whose authority do you bow the knee and surrender to? Do you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, or do you bow the knee, believing that you are the authority? Because in the end, the scriptures tell us in Philippians 2 that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess his name, his name, on heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And if you do not choose to bow now, you will be made to bow later. Whose authority do you bow to? Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. And we pray, O oh God, that each and every day that we struggle against sin, Father, we would bow the knee in morning and in night to say, Lord, help me in my weakness to follow you and I pray, God, that you would renew our heart with a new resolve to live in a way that pleases you. Father, for our desire is to bring you glory, you praise. May we not live in the fear of people, but may we live in the fear of who you are, that we might be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.